And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network, which we are now proud members of. Check them out. Uh, They're awesome. My name is Stephen Hostetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour, and the two of us are here with a special episode talking about an amazing book that's coming out very soon called The End of the World as We Know It. Steph, I hate to have to issue a correction right off the top, but I think we got the book title wrong. Looking at at the cover page right here, I believe it's called The End of This World, which which feels like an important syntactical thing, right? The end of this world, yeah, the present system that we reside within. But we'll get into that with the guests. We are joined by four of the co-authors, a packed house for us. We rarely are able to actually get so many people on at the same time. So thank you all so much for being here. Angel Aluk, Bronwyn Tucker, Joel LaForest, and David Gray Donald. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Amazing. Hey, thanks. For- <laughs> Big picture. And we, we start with you, Bronwyn. Uh, what did you set out to accomplish with this book? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think basically six person team, I feel like is chaotic, um, but we thought kind of necessary. I think like we were all people who have been working on kind of different corners of climate justice or indigenous rights over the last decade. And I think kind of from our different vantage points, seeing some really similar um, struggles or or problems. And so I think we're at a point where um, we've seen kind of more popular anger and attention and mobilization around uh, both the climate crisis and indigenous rights in Canada. but despite that, I feel like for like almost the last decade, we're kind of uh, like spiraling. Like we see really either really shallow solutions or still even backtracking from our governments kind of um, on in terms of where we'd actually, what we need to do to be able to, to really solve um, both of these. And so, yeah, I think part of that was that our communities and movements have been kept really busy saying no to things instead of being able to kind of create detailed and shared ideas of, of what we could have instead and, and really be able to fight for those um, instead of just always kind of um, kind of fighting on in incremental um, places or like in incremental ways. And so, yeah, I think we were all just really wanted to kind of take some time and actually dig deep into some of the world building and, and like visioning around what we could actually do around uh, climate justice and kind of decolonial struggles and build a bit of a map um, on how we could you know, get there um, and I'll pause in case someone wants to, to add too. I'll, I'll just add briefly that there's a few climate books that have come out, um, you know, every few years, there's there's some good climate books. Uh, we were inspired by um, World on Fire, was it? Or um, some books in the US and then also Seth Klein's uh, A Good War about mobilizing for the climate emergency. Most of the climate books, however, don't really integrate Indigenous sovereignty and the forefront Indigenous sovereignty. And it's so important really anywhere, but especially you know here in Canada or in Indigenous territories that are sometimes called Canada, uh, so-called Canada, to, to really foreground that and show how both the climate crisis and the Indigenous sovereignty um, struggles are really closely linked and the, the solutions can be found for both in the same struggles. We wanted to bring that forward. Well, I'm I'm so excited. I can't wait to read it. We're probably going to repeat that over and over. That's going to be the line in the refrain that that listeners hear a lot over the next 45 minutes or so. Um, because yeah, like like you said, it's it's there's there's a ton of fantastic kind of like leftist progressive climate writing out there. Um, but obviously, we always need more of it from so-called Canada and, and specifically within the so-called Canadian context. So I think listeners are going to be really really thirsty and hungry for this book when it comes out. Um, so just so listeners can get an idea of who each of you are, um, if we can just kind of go one by one and you can tell me a, like what your name is, what you do, um, but also like what interested you about the project and how it is that you got involved. Um, and I'm just going to go in the order that you appear on my little zoom screen. So, so actually Dave, can I, can I throw to you first? Can we start with you? Just, yeah. How you got involved in the project? What interested you about it? Yeah, hi, I'm Dave, uh, David Gray Donald, and I'm in Toronto, Treaty 13 uh, territory, Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, and I've been uh, doing climate, climate journalism um, for almost 10 years now, and 
and some fundraising as well. Um, and yeah, I was working in the book publishing industry. And so I was learning about how to make books, how to write books, how to edit books. And I was like, there should be a climate book. Uh, there should be an indigenous sovereignty book. They should be the same book. And so that's kind of my involvement. Rad, succinct, tight. I love it. Um, I'll go to jo uh, Joel. I'll go to you next. Hi, my name is Joel Forrest. Um, I came to this book mostly through doing some freelance writing and also working on a podcast uh, called The Alberta Advantage. And um, yeah, my, my interest was in, I guess, the history of social democratic projects in Canada. And, um, you know, as we've seen neoliberalism kind of take shape over the past few decades, uh, a lot of those social democratic projects have, have shrunk in their kind of like scope or ambition. Uh, and so this project was a really interesting way of like looking at the history uh, and also trying to reimagine like how could you um, recast those sort of like potentially uh, very radical social democratic traditions in in the, to, to address the current crisis. Right. Yeah. Joel, you're, uh, you're a host on the Alberta Advantage, which is also part of the Harbinger family. So we've got a little bit of a podcast network crossover today. So fun. I think if anything, that just demonstrates how, how small the movement is, in, <laughs> how small the movement is that we're all a part of. The, um, the Harbinger podcast universe. Yes. Yeah. Um, Angel, can I hear from you, please? Uh, hi. Yeah. My name is Angel Aluk. I, uh, grew up, um, at Big Stone Cree Nation in Treaty 8 Territory in Northern Alberta, which happens to be situated within the Boreal Forest and also the Athabasca Oil Sands Deposit, which has a huge impact on um, my community and our local economy. And um, I'm also a professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies. I'm, I'm a labor researcher. I, I've, I've worked in the labor movement as a researcher um, so I have a lot of concerns with access to decent work, um, looking at the importance of paid and unpaid labor that women do, how a lot of labor, um, in care work is done by women and racialized folks, how our economy and labor force is basically divided by race and gender. And so I do a lot of work in that area. I've also done work with my home uh, research with my home community, um, interviewing um, traditional knowledge keepers and, um, you know, people with land-based practices at Big Stone Cree Nation. I've also, you know, done research on the impact that the oil industry and those jobs have on my community. And I've also done stuff on um, caregivers in our economy, whether they're paid or unpaid. I've also done stuff with the labor movement. Um, I started thinking about a just transition maybe like five years ago when I was working for a union in Alberta and we wanted to um, include some language about just transition in our union's constitution. And now I'm also active as a member of the bargaining team um, on my faculty association union at York. And so, again, we tried to push for climate change language in our collective agreement. And, you know, I'm also dealing with issues of equity and bargaining here. So I do a lot of labor work and I'm an Indigenous scholar. So and I'm a feminist, if you don't know that yet. <laughs> no, so excited or so, uh, so looking forward to hearing from you more about about your just transition work, um, just because it it is it's such a hot button topic in sort of so-called Canada right now um, with just transition legislation potentially on the, well not potentially we know it's on the horizon we know it's coming out so so getting your perspectives on that um, both in this conversation today but then when the book eventually comes out I think it's going to be really important um, but uh, Bronwyn can I wrap up with you what what brought you onto the project I think just kind of the idea really was hitting at a bunch of things that I was really like struggling with to think through and wanting more space to think through in my own kind of community organizing. Um, and then the research I do for work, I think just really feel like we're at this moment where we need um, some like clear ideas of where we want to go and like meet, have those kind of um, like make space for those debates. And so, yeah, I think kind of um, I'm um, in uh, Toronto uh, today, but usually, um, or have spent a lot of the last little bit on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, um, and otherwise, I think just kind of 
over the last decade, I think, like started uh, first kind of got involved in any of these issues in 2012 around the Quebec student strikes, but otherwise was kind of part of the quote unquote, like youth climate movement. And I think kind of seeing a lot of the different iterations or struggles in um, how that's gone, I think with some really cool wins, but also um, in some places, you know, not um, not getting where we'd want to go. So I think kind of um, both kind of seeing different struggles in a couple of different places in, in so-called Canada, and then really the last uh, like five or six years in, in Edmonton and um, thinking about just how many, um, like all the exciting things we could do and wanting to spend time um, like writing and thinking about those. Yeah. Getting all those like generative visionary thoughts down. Um, it's what we need. So thank you. Okay. I'm going to throw it back over to, to Steph. Yeah. Thanks so much. So I think the, what I love about this book is that, you know, you set out to create a vision for people to be able to imagine a better world. And I, I think one of the foundations that is in the book and also, you know, is in a lot of the visions that we've seen slowly building over the last, uh, you know, decade or decade and a half is around this idea of a just transition. And so, Angela, I'd wonder if we could go back to you to talk a little bit about sort of how you see it and how the book sort of sees a, a just transition. So I think at some point in the book, I say that a just transition should be feminist and decolonial and anti-capitalist and also move towards indigenous economies of care. Um, this is a huge question to ask somebody like me. So um, first of all, just transition, like I, I just came from COP27 and I attended some just transition talks with the International Labor Organization and it's it's so interesting, you know, when people talk about just transition, they mainly talk about very masculine jobs in the resource sector and the loss of those jobs and how those specific workers need to transition to something else, uh, which is very important. You know, families, communities rely on those jobs, those incomes um, to live. However, you know, the focus tends to be on unionized, well-paid jobs that are mostly occupied by white men. So what about all these other resource jobs by indigenous folks and racialized folks that tend to be more precariously employed in this industry? You know, they should ha also have access to decent work. So I think a just transition should be, you know, take into consideration unionized and non-unionized workers, racialized workers, precarious workers, I think a just transition should also take into consideration the contribution that um, the public sector pays to the economy, the care work, the importance of health care and education and all of these different workforces, how they contribute to an economy. I think women's roles, you know, as caregivers, as the ones who do the social reproductive work at home, when we send our family members off to these resource sector jobs, need to be taken into consideration so and we also need to consider indigenous rights and our rights to the lands and our right to land back and all of these things I think all of these resource sector jobs all of this extraction is happening in indigenous territories not just my territory but like Canada also mines in places like Brazil in South America uh, what about those indigenous people and their rights to the land so a just transition I think needs to be centered on Indigenous sovereignty, Indigenous rights to the land and water. By the way, we're poisoning and killing our water through this resource extraction industry. It's using more water than any other industry or any other thing on this planet. So um, Indigenous people's rights to the land and water and sovereignty and self-determination need to be at the forefront of any just transition because indigenous people are the stewards of the land. Like we maintain most of the biodiversity and forests and oceans in the world. Uh, even though we are a small population, we're the reason we still have a bit of green land, green oceans. So I think indigenous sovereignty needs to be at the forefront of a just transition. Um, so it needs to be decolonial. It needs to be feminist. We need to consider consider men and women's jobs. It needs to be anti-racist. We need to look at how our economies are very racialized based on work, how we exploit workers from the global south in Canada. And it needs to be anti-capitalist. Why is capitalism the only economy, like the way only way we look at economies? 
You know, I think one of the recent Nobel Prize winners, um, an economist who said, why are we measuring things with GDP? Why are we measuring our economy's wellness based on growth? We need to move away from growth economies. We need to move towards economies where we care about people, where we care about everyone's life, where people can live a good, happy life and have good jobs. So to me, a just transition is all of those things. It's decolonial, it's feminist, it's anti-racist, it's anti-capitalist, and it's one based on care and reciprocity. And it, it's one that also has like a very high moral and ethic to it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I, I love that you a bring up the the care economy because that's something that the super interested in. We'll get into a bit later, and then also just talk about alternative ways to you know we had a we had a conversation a couple of weeks months ago with the degrowth movement, and there's a few more. Uh, but we, I think I we're at, well, a couple of weeks ago we had one with the well being economy uh, activists who are trying to change change the get, move off growth, and that seems to be such a foundational change that's needed to to get get to get action. Um, so really appreciate your thoughts on that. So Joel, we're going to go to you for this one. Um, so the title, the end of this world, what's the, what's the subtitle there? The end of this world, climate justice and so-called Canada, um, hints like pretty explicitly at, at apocalypse. Um, what is it that drew you as kind of like a writing unit to that language? Um, especially, I don't know, as a movement, I feel like we're constantly like debating syntax and like how, how much we should lean into to language of apocalypse, how much we lean into like, I don't know, doomsaying. So yeah, if you could, if you could dig into that a little bit for me. Sure thing. So the title, uh, despite what you might read, is not meant to be depressing. I, I think what we had in mind, and I don't want to speak for everyone on the team, but just, just my thoughts here are that, um, you know, the language of apocalypse is about a certain way of life ending. It doesn't mean all life ending. It doesn't mean planetary life ending. It means a particular way of being ending. Um, when you think about Canada's history, uh, for example, what comes to mind right now is like, um, you know, I read not too long ago, Clearing the Plains by um, James Daschuk. Uh, and it's about the the kind of apocalypse of settler colonialism in terms of what it did to indigenous ways of life in on the plains, on the prairies. Um, that was an apocalypse. Um, some people certainly felt it that way and other people did not. Uh, and I think we need to think of, we, th we need to think apocalyptically in that kind of sense, in that um, when we're calling for the end of this world, we're not saying like everybody give up. What we're saying is that <laughs> what we need to do is change things radically, which means a particular way of being is going to likely wind down and other ways of being will likely take a place. I don't know if you've ever had a tarot card reading and they pull out the death card and your first instinct is like, oh my gosh, that's bad. And then sort of like, I don't know, when you talk to people about it more, what you realize is that like the death card is actually about like regeneration. And it's the <laughs> idea that in order for one beautiful thing to come about, something else has to end. So I don't know. That's kind of the way I was thinking about it as you were talking. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, fair. Um, <laughs> I think Angel also wants to add something. Yeah, please. Yeah, I want to add something to that. And I, I think that's a great point that Joel made, like, like another way of living is possible. Um, other ways of thinking about economies are possible. But I also want to add that, you know, for Indigenous people, we've been facing various apocalypses and genocides, you know, ever since settlers have come here and displaced people and, you know, murdered whole villages in order to make way for colonies. And we saw the genocide of our buffalo. We're seeing the genocide of our caribou, the genocide of our coral reefs. I don't I don't mean to get into this doomsday stuff, but um, my own people who were displaced and forced into agricultural means of survival, um, even though we we hunted and harvested off the land for since time immemorial. The murdered and missing Indigenous women's phenomenon was, by definition, um, a genocide, according to the United Nations. The 60s scoop, the children that died at residential schools, that was a genocide we survived. If I'm going to take away anything from this history of genocides that my people have survived, it's that we survived. We found a way to live, even though the nation state in Canada and America basically wanted us dead and needed us dead to access our land and steal our land. We found a way to make life, even though, you know, we had people coming home from residential school and and um, out of the child welfare system messed up 
you know, we still found a way to come back to our communities and make lives for ourselves and build families and continue in our traditions. That's one thing I found in my research. Indigenous people continue. We never, we, we never went missing. We're, we, our nations weren't killed off. We're still here. We still hunt and divide our moose meat and our families. We still go pick mint with our grandmothers. Like we still go out on the land with our children and, you know, practice our spirituality on the land. We we've survived. We've, we've made another way. And indigenous economies were not based on capitalism. And so many economies around the world were built on, you know, different ideas of, of, um, of life. So I think when we say at the end of this world, it's the end of this capitalist um, death drive. It's the beginning of a new life. It's a beginning of a decolonial future. Like indigenous people traditionally used to do controlled burns on the land. We used to burn the grass and the bush um, because it would grow back greener and healthier and we would start over. So I think that's how we need to think about this. We, we can start over in, in a good and better way. I think part of the, the reasoning around the title also had to do with, um, I guess we wanted to contrast it with a lot of the, I guess there are camps within particularly discussing climate that tend to frame it in terms of like incremental progress, you know, little reforms here and there will get us to where we need to be. And I don't know, that doesn't seem to be working. Like every year I look at the, the CO2 <laughs> emissions chart, it goes up, 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 up every year. Uh, and so I think there was a need to to recast it rather than say like, oh, we just need to like try a little harder or do a few little reforms here or there. Say, no, we need a paradigm shift, which is the, the intent of the title. I was working on a project over the summer and last year where we sort of this thing apocalypse. And one of the things I came to was this question of who gets to decide when an apocalypse is happening? You know, and and that exact thought of like apocalypse is personal. You know, it's individual, it's cultural, it's it's the so many people have experienced that, and so I, I that's part of why I resonated with this book, the title so much when I first saw it. So to move into sort of the 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 sort of goal of the action from this book, I'm curious, and we'll go to you, Bronwyn, first. And if anyone else has any thoughts, please jump in. Two part question. One is, what lessons do you hope movements can need to learn to be able to sort of bring this? this forward? And then also, who do you see this book being for? You know, who hope, who do you hope reads this book beyond obviously everybody, everybody go read this book? So like when we were writing the book, uh, a lot of us have been in like, I think just so many public events where like also, you know, you can talk about the concepts and like what is needed to be done, what our vision is, but there's always like, no matter what, at least one person um, who has the question of like, okay, but what do we do about it? Um, and I think like so many books, um, it's hard to do both, um, but we really, really wanted to try to do both of like setting out the vision, but also like meaningfully talking about like social movements and how we actually can get to where we want to uh, go. And so, yeah, I think got to got to spend a lot of time on both in this book. Um, and in terms of movements, we I think we're in a moment where we know these ideas are really popular, um, and there's a lot of people who are really want to get involved. I think there's also a lot of people who are kind of stuck in maybe going back even to like the title of like the end of this world, I think just there's also this like really prevalent kind of like nihilism or like anxiety around like the moment we're in after like three years of pandemic, people are feeling more isolated and really anxious about just like the future in general. And I think social movements are a really good antidote to that if we do it, do them well, because I think people are, you know, really want a, a livable and like just future, but they also in like more concrete ways, like want community and um, like need, um, want like strong relationships in their lives. And if we do movement building well, like it can solve both of those problems at once. Um, but yeah, maybe like a couple core things from the, the parts around movement building um, in the book. I think social movements in Canada have been a lot stronger at different points in history than they are now. And from that, we can really learn that like movements are infrastructure like there is actually just really concrete things we can do and institutions we can build or rebuild and like some of that is literally actually money um, but a lot of it is also like building up people's skills and building strategy and so I think getting really serious around like what um, organizations and physical spaces and networks we're building and like really investing in those um, is is a big theme we talk about and there's like cool ways also to kind of redistribute 
people's money and time or like co-opt existing organizations to try to do that. But really thinking about like, we do need um, bodies and, and uh, organizations that can hold a lot of people. Um, I think it's, yeah, movements obviously like answering this question for everyone is really hard because I think there's also like an ecosystem and different roles for everyone. But I think generally a really a thing that's needed from almost everyone is, or almost every kind of organization is, is meeting people where they're at. And so I feel like part of that infrastructure um, that's really needed is a lot more ways to kind of find people where they're at already in their communities. And so, you know, organizing out of a specific local school or at, uh, like we talk a lot about workplace organizing in unions. So kind of making it easy for people in their kind of current position to get involved and, and stay involved. Um, and then, yeah, I think otherwise we, there's also, I think a lot around where there's so much, <laughs> so much happening all the time. Um, I think things are really urgent and it's really easy to get into a, a bit of like panic mode and just react to things. And so really encouraging and have a bit of a framework for helping people think through strategy and really try to think about tactics that are both winnable, but can also get us towards like the world that we want to live. So shifting some really, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> um, trying to shift like some really key barriers that will like unlock a lot more possibilities rather than just being like, oh, well, how do we get from where we are today to like all of these giant changes we need, need um, really try to help like, give ideas of like some cool interim steps that can really shift the terrain for, for future struggle. So just really excited for people to try to also think about where, where they can map this vision into like the work they're already doing. Awesome. Yeah. And I think we're going to try to talk a little bit about um, kind of that roadmap, like you said, instead of just thinking about like where we are and that far distant vision of where we're going to be, but, but how we're going to get there. I think we're going to hopefully chat about that a little bit later in the hour. But for now, I, I still want to focus on that vision a little bit. Dave, if or David, sorry, if you can talk to me a little bit about something that's mentioned in the book, this concept of green infrastructure for all, which is decidedly different from the type of infrastructure that Bronwyn was just mentioning. But yeah, green infrastructure for all and and that vision of going like far beyond just like simple decarbonization. Can you tell our listeners about that vision a little bit and, and what you're referring to there? Yeah. So I think the, the first part of what you were talking about is that there's some climate plans that are like, let's just electrify everything. And that's the transition and, and renewable energy and electrify everything. Um, and that's just not going to work for everyone. You know, I look around Toronto I'm looking out the window right now and the transit system sucks. Like people are waiting for streetcars for way too long. Subways are packed. Um, you know, if we electrify all the cars, there's still a lot of embedded emissions in making electric cars and they don't actually improve congestion on the roads. So people are still commuting super far. So what we are talking about in terms of green infrastructure for all is making livable communities with good services that are accessible for all people. So it's good housing, it's good transit, good public services like for kids programs, sports facilities, schools, healthcare. You know, we're watching the healthcare system collapse right now. Um, that's not working for everyone. So uh, it's those sorts of things that we're talking about. We, we don't wanna just simply um, electrify everything, but also transform our infrastructure as it exists now to work for everyone. Thanks for that clarification. Because I know for, for folks who are maybe embedded within kind of like the environmental side of things, green infrastructure can sometimes have a really specific um, sort of definition that pertains to like, I don't know, rain gardens. <laughs> so 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 clarifying that, that we're going beyond that when, when we say green infrastructure. That's great. Thank you, Dave. To, to get into what we sort of mentioned earlier, um, Angel, when you mentioned the caring economy, that is... One of these examples of of how I think a lot of the, the sort of, I'm going to say old school environmentalists, but I don't know, really know what, what it is, get sort of stuck at the decarbonization piece and don't think further about what really a, a low carbon or, or zero carbon or, 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 or just transition kind of economy can look like. And the caring economy piece is huge. And so can you explain to our listeners sort of what a care economy is and and the benefits it can bring to folks? Yeah, so I want to move the discussion a little bit further from even care jobs and the care economy in our traditional um, capitalist economy. And just as Joel said, we need a paradigm shift in how we understand economies. 
you know, as an Indigenous scholar and Nihio person, I really feel like the capitalist economy works hand in hand with colonialism and is based on growth and high profits, which basically means killing more and more of our forests and our lakes and our lands um, in order to earn these profits for a very small few in our society. So I think we need to move towards understanding an economy based on indigenous understandings of economies. Indigenous people had, you know, whole societies and nations and ways of sharing and trading and relationship with the land. You can't even own the land in indigenous understandings of the world. You can't own or sell the land. The land is your mother and gives us life. And, you know, that's an economic relationship we have with the earth and and a relationship we have with the earth. So we need to move towards an understanding of an economy, in my opinion, to how indigenous people understood the economy. And so the only way I can do that is to rely on indigenous knowledge. And as a Cree Nihio person, that means um, beginning with understanding indigenous systems of care and indigenous laws of care. So um, in the chapter that I worked on, on a caring economy, I go through those different laws, how Nihio people had a law of which means raising your kids in a good way, raising your children surrounded by elders and cousins and siblings and where everybody had a role of caring for each other. And the goal of the community was to take care of the next generations. The goal of the economy was to take care of future generations and to save the land for future generations. Um, the Cree law of which means to have good relations, to have unity with each other. An important law as well is um, which means pulling together especially pulling together in times of crisis. Like this term often comes up when a loved one dies and we have to pull together to take care of the person who's going through through grief. If someone's house burns down or if there's a crisis or, or in the wintertime when my people would have to share firewood um, and share food during the cold winter months, you know, you pulled together and we really need to pull together as, as a society to deal with this climate crisis. Um, and another very important Cree law is Manajetawin, which I always understood to mean um, to be careful, to be, you know, respectful to the earth, to only take what you need from the earth, um, to understand that our relationship with the earth and with our other human and non-human relations is based on reciprocity. And so from those types of laws and understandings of the earth and our relationship to the earth and with each other, then we can build economies of care. And from this, we can have a very feminist vision. We can have kind of a socialist vision. I'm not talking about the academic understanding of that, but you know the concept that I learned from working in the social movements of everybody's work matters, everybody contributes, we share everything. From that, I take that we should invest in public services. We should invest in childcare. If we invest in childcare, people, women will have access to the labor force. If we invest in long-term care, women and young adults can have more time to invest in um, themselves and and to work if we if we invest in the education system if we divest from things like the police force and the military we can put more into our land because a lot of these green new deals that are discussed talk about building more infrastructure construction let's build 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 those are short-term jobs made mostly for men Let's consider building stable long-term jobs, um, such as in the care economy. Uh, that's my understanding of a caring economy, indigenous economies of care, and feminist economies.
an economy that takes into consideration the work of everyone, make sure everyone has access to decent work, make sure everyone can live a good, happy life. Otherwise, what's the point of living? Because right now, resource extraction jobs are not always good jobs. Long hours, poor working conditions, based on a boom and bust economy, sometimes you make a lot, sometimes you make nothing, break families apart, break communities apart. As a sociologist, I understand like we're social beings. We need to be together. We need to have caring relationships with each other in order to have a good life. So a caring economy, the result should not be increased profits. The result should be everyone gets to eat and have housing, have education and live a good, happy life. I really love that uh, distinction between the care economy and then the care, like a caring economy that kind of busts open those paradigms of um, what we think of as like an economic system here in the West. Thanks so much for digging into that so, so deeply. I think our next question, we're going to go to Joel and Bronwyn. I, however, whichever one of you wants to take it first. Uh, one of the principles that Angel was just talking about is sort of that concept of pulling together. So what do you see and and what did you discuss in the book in terms of that that roadmap that you referenced earlier, Bronwyn, um, towards bringing about this world and this and this beautiful vision? And what do you see as being ways that people can begin taking steps towards it? And how 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 are how are you inviting folks to get involved within the book? I think so for like the first chapter where we kind of shift gears from like the big picture vision to then a bit more like, what do we do about it? Um, we kind of started with like backcasting from like 2025 of like, okay, if things went pretty well, like what would things look like in two or three years? Like what, what is some of the stuff that feels maybe possible? Cause I think there's just like that massive gap between where we want, like where we want the world to be and yeah, obviously. And what we, the world we have uh, today. And I think, one core thing is definitely like the caring economy and green infrastructure for all of that. Um, Dave and Angel just talked about like, these aren't just the world that we want um, or, or programs that we want um, that, you know, if, if some of the specific things, if they happen tomorrow, um, those that just like a net win for, I think like our society. Um, but it's not just that we want them. It's also, I think like deeply linked to the strategy. I don't think we can really win um, like we kind of can see the kind of like net zero um, or like climate language. Um, I actually honestly think we're, we're already seeing just transition like co-opted by a lot of uh, like finance and industry folks already. And so I feel like really um, that there's like some really kind of uh, scary versions of climate action that won't solve the climate crisis that, um, you know, will continue to like live off land theft. And so um, really tried to like ID kind of um, six kind of strategies that um, are kind of in that space of like winnable, but also will get us closer. And so maybe just to give um, a couple examples, I think like there's some really active land back work around land rights, legal cases, or um, like active blockades. And so that's one where we thought like, you know, in the next three years, if people really um, invest in those and, and scale them up and support um, nations near where they're living um, in the case of settlers, that's like, you know, one really concrete thing that um, can then unlock a bunch of things that will um, make our broader vision possible. Similarly, we pointed to a lot of really active um, labor rights struggles where people are kind of already remaking their unions for the struggle or unionizing new workplaces, where that'll give us a lot more kind of ammunition to get where we want to. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it um, is about just like trying to build alliances or, or forge links between struggles that can on the surface appear to be very different, like um, stuff like, I don't know more, uh, stuff like particular labor struggles, like all of these things, there are lots of links between them there. And there's no reason they, they should appear as separate. And in fact, like the, for us, we're, uh, I think a lot of what we're calling for is to build those bridges, uh, make those alliances, have those discussions so that, um, there can be a bit more of a united front in terms of those struggles. There's also a kind of like educational part to these struggles in terms of like how they face the public, the, the kind of like spectacle of it, um, in engaging in these struggles. It's not just you know, obviously there are objectives and, um, you know, the whatever's happening on the ground in a particular struggle in that particular situation, but you're also teaching the public um, about what it is that's going on and being able to teach the public um, how to make those links is also really important. 
I know, I know we're running out of time and we have to go to our last couple of questions, but on that note, that sort of intersection of those, well, I hate using that word is such a hot button is like a, is a, such a difficult, tricky word to use now, but, um, it, like sort of the way those different movements come together. Angel, you, you, you work at sort of like the convergence point of so many of those, uh, various issue areas and movements. You were talking about labor, you were talking about, um, feminism, your positionality as an indigenous woman. So, uh, do you have any comments on that and and how we should build this path forward um and and build those coalitions and and those networks and those relationships between those various sort of groups that maybe in the past have have struggled to come together? Yeah, coming from academia, like academics like to divide things up, right? Like I'm a researcher on work and I only look at work. I'm a researcher on environmental studies and I only do that. But when you look at people's lives, especially working class folks and their lives, their lives are very intersectional. Like I can't separate that I'm an indigenous woman and, you know, I come from this very specific place in Canada um, from my work. Like people's actual lived experiences deal with all of these issues. I, I can't afford to just talk about one of these issues. Like my home community has been evacuated a few times because of, um, forest fires right now we're dealing with like water being taken from our lakes for because of the oil industry and a boil water crisis indigenous people are used to talking about all these things at once which maybe is why i do this kind of work and you know i've worked in these spaces like the labor movement and um i guess like environmental movement from my work at cop yeah we we have to work together because our lives depend on it. And these aren't separate issues. They all affect each other. If you don't have access to clean water or air, you're going to have health issues. And if you happen to be a woman or racialized or poor, it's going to affect you more. So, you know, I I don't see these issues separately. Um, And I think that's part of like an indigenous viewpoint on the world to be just like holistic. We're all connected. These things are all connected. And maybe to come in briefly just on the piece of like, how can folks, you know, take, begin taking steps towards building this world? I think there's like definitely a piece around, uh, you know, the, the parts of social movements that are really visible are really just like the tip of the iceberg. And so I think the kind of like popular imagination is like, you know, to get involved, you need to like attend a march and like carry your sign around and um, or like even some of the uh, stuff like you know you need to hang off a bridge with a banner and like we do need those people but I think the like the point we really really try to make is that um this it, you know um there is a role for everyone and that our power also as individuals is often just in our own networks and communities and so um I think just we tried to also kind of go through like um you know if you have like a, a tech job and you can code like you know there's things there's like so many uh, platforms or things that are like needed to be to be built. Um, I think there's a ton around uh, hard conversations and and having really deeply investing in like facilitation training to be able to kind of pull some of these coalitions together. Um, there's like you know if you uh, have uh, gen- intergenerational wealth or like come from a wealthy background, um, you know talking to your family and actually kind of trying to figure out how to redistribute wealth is like a really critical role. Um, and so yeah, I think we just also really tried to expand that idea of like what it means to be involved and what it means to um, kind of push in this direction. I wish we had another hour just to like dig into that, um, making people sort of like see themselves reflected within the movement and, and find those ways of, of plugging in that, that like you said, maybe don't look like hanging off of a bridge with a banner, though that's like rad work and we need that to happen too. Anyway, sorry, we're moving on in this conversation. We got to wrap up. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we just have one last uh, question for y'all before we find out how to find this book. And uh, just quickly, because I, I I always have this question whenever I talk to people who've done some deep work in, in writing books, because I always find them interesting, which is, if there's one thing you learned while doing the research for this book or writing this book that sticks with you, uh, what was it? And we'll just go in the order of uh, Angel, uh, Bronwyn, Joel, and then David. Okay, I'll I'll try to be quick about this, but I think the one thing I learned was um what it means to have really good allies. As a woman, as an indigenous person, as a labor movement person, I really valued 
the the contributions from everybody on this book we we had many long discussions we wrote this during the pandemic so i think a lot of us actually became friends because we had really deep discussions because this book is part of many of our life's work so it's it's very personal and political to us um so we got to know each other really well but there were times you know as the academic and as like the loud indigenous woman where I just wanted to research and write like so much and and really dig my point in. And then, you know, people like David and Bronwyn would help me <laughs> rejig some of my writing and 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 pull pull me back a bit. There was some very stressful times during the pandemic where I had some text messages between some of the other myself and other co-authors. You know, being an ally it doesn't mean just like, I support your cause. It's actually like doing that intellectual and emotional work together and really being there for each other. You know, as an Indigenous person, I get asked to do so many things on behalf of the Indigenous community. Um, and, and this book, again, one of the main focuses is Indigenous sovereignty. And I couldn't write that alone. I'm lucky I had Crystal Lehman write much of that and provide her opinion on my chapter that I wrote on caring economy. So I just had a great experience of having Indigenous and non-Indigenous allies on this project. And and now I know what a good ally looks like. That's one thing I learned. Well, I will jump in. I think um, one thing that I feel like we definitely say this over and over again, like, you know, this is not the first Just Transition book. It's not the first Land Back book. And I think in starting, we also spent um, a lot of time talking to people and reading um, like previous visions of a just transition or a Green New Deal or whatever kind of label people were using. And I think something that really struck me um, kind of looking also at, um, there's lots of really like brilliant kind of global South-led uh, like principles and, and social movement texts on this kind of thing as well. And then also looking at a lot of the kind of Cree um, principles or uh, Cree laws that um, Angel or uh, Crystal brought in the book. I think there is just some really cool common threads where, like, obviously there's 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 also lots of differences in those visions. But I think more than anything, I feel like there's just like amazing, really common threads through a lot of different visions or also even like academic texts. And so I think that whole that all made me feel a lot more hopeful. Where you know there is actually a lot in common and a lot of really, I think just some really cool convergence um, across some of these visions, even though they're kind of originating from really different communities or, or places. I totally agree with that as well. Yeah, what I think was really valuable about um, this whole writing exercise and writing as a group was, I feel like often we're, we're very busy fighting like defensive battles about like what it is that's happening in a particular time and place. Uh, and this really offered us the opportunity to think in terms of strategy, think in terms of like multi-year vision and do all this research from a lot of social movements and labor struggles that share a lot in common, but don't often like have the opportunity to put those um, struggles in conversation. Uh, and so all of that together is what, well, it was just really valuable for me personally. It was like, unlike, um, unlike writing I've done in the past. Uh, and it was a really unique opportunity. And I, I think it's something that honestly, um, folks should do more of because it really um, put together a lot of threads that um, needed to be put into conversation. Yeah, uh, I agree with all that. And I'll just um, add, you know, not to, not to say we weren't adding anything new, but this, this exercise reminded me that there's so much really insightful research and writing that has, has uh, been done already. And part of media making is just reiterating in new ways what has been said before, what has been thought before, making it relevant to the current context. You know, as, as Bronwyn mentioned, we read a lot of existing texts. Like, this is not the first book about environmental transformation, about societal transformation, about the oil sands, tar sands. Books like that have been written, articles, investigations. And so sometimes it felt like we were you know, going back and be like, oh, wow, yeah, like um, this, you know, Beaver Lake Cree Nation has been at this since 2008, their Supreme Court challenge about cumulative impact. And, you know, it's still relevant. 
and we still need to tell the story and there are new things to bring to it. So just as an act of media making, I was reminded that, um, you know, the same message can be new, even if it's the underlying currents are, are old. Well, I think those are four wonderful takeaway points uh, for everyone. And so if people have now listened to this and they want to get a hold of this book uh, that, you know, brought all of you together and truly is, in my mind, one of the really exciting books uh, to start this new year, how can they do that? Uh, and when can they do that? Right. So the book is available as of uh, January 17th. And the best option I can suggest is that people contact or go to the website of their local bookstore. Uh, support your support your local bookseller. So it might the, the book is already on the website of a lot of bookstores. So you could go to the website, order it from there, either pick it up at the store or they might send it. You could also order directly from um, between the lines, which is the publisher, we can uh, include that uh, link in the the show notes, maybe. And then all of the online, like the big, the big online stores that I won't even say the name of, they all carry the book, so you can find it there as well. Uh, if your if your local indie bookstore doesn't have it yet, give them a call or drop by or email them and and tell them to carry it because uh, you'll buy it and a few other people will, I'm sure, as well if they see it. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. This was such a fantastic conversation. Um, I know I'm so excited to read the book. Readers are going to be so excited to read the book. Thank you so much for your expertise and your thoughts today and just for engaging us um, or engaging with us on on these super important topics. But uh, that's it for The Green Majority today. My name's Lauren. My co-host today is Stefan. Um, and today we've been talking to Joel, Bronwyn, Angel, and um, David, who are four of the six co-authors of The End of This World. Thank you so much. Have a, have a wonderful rest of your afternoon, listeners.